Kids, we love having you in here. And so I need a couple of you who are willing to play a game. And you need to be really good at this, so I'm not even telling you what it is yet. All right, Nora, let's, let's go with our kids. Leland, come on up. Nora, come on up, Leland. Um, if this goes poorly, now we have to deal with it, so. <laughs> All right, <clears throat> so I'm gonna give you this. This is a kazoo, and you this. This is a kazoo. And so what's going to happen is actually all the kids are going to play this, okay? You guys ready, kids? So it's name that tune. So tell me the name of the song. They have to perform the song for you. You cannot talk, okay? You can only play the song in the kazoo. So I'm going to show you the name of the song that I want you to play. We're going to do one at a time. Do your very best kazoo performance. And let's see if they can guess it, okay? So we're going to start with this one. You guys see it? Mr. Reggie's gonna mic you up. <laughs> you guys ready? On three. One, two, three. Oh, yeah. You know it. Yeah, there we go. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. All right. All right. There we go. All right. Let's go a little more contemporary. Let's go with that one. You guys got that one? You ready? Okay, get ready. You guys ready? Dads, you know this one. Oh, there you go, baby shark. All right. Um, ooh. Let's this is going to be a little difficult. You got it? <laughs> oh, that was good. Let it go. Very nice. Very nice. All right. And just, just because you know you've got to play it, Leo. <laughs> Star Wars. There we go. Nicely done, guys. Nicely done. Here, have, have a ring pop. You can keep the kazoos. We definitely don't want them. <laughs> Nicely done. Um, so we'll start with that, and then I now have to confess to you some parenting failure. Uh, my kids have seen some things that they should not have seen. Our kids. Our kids. <laughs> I, I can only speak for myself. Courtney and I have not always done a good job of knowing when they can watch certain things. Um, you know, I don't know if you can relate, but in my mind, there are so many movies that I saw as a child, and I think, like, it's just so harmless. Like, that's such a good classic. And then you're like, it's time for you to watch it. And you start to watch, and you're like, oh, no. That's in that? Like, we have to have a conversation. Like, this isn't good. So um, we just, we've not always done a good job with that. Um, but I do want to defend myself a little because if you have a conversation, especially with my daughter right now, she may tell you that she has watched things she has not watched. And I want that to be clear. Um, things like, currently, it's Jaws. Came on the other day and she's like, I watched Jaws. I was like, no, you did not. Courtney, did she watch Jaws? She's like, I watched the video. Like, there's no way mommy let you watch Jaws. Like, we'll never get you back in the ocean. And she's convinced. But here's the thing. Uh, this, this fun game we've been playing, you can go on YouTube and you can search for these videos where it's like a name that tune. And so somebody on just like a simple piano will play the melody of a song and you have so many seconds to guess what that is, whether it's a video game soundtrack or a movie theme song, whatever it is. So it's become this fun thing that our family does. But in her mind... She thinks she's watched it because she'll see like the little picture from it. So she's seen the picture from Jaws and has watched the video of somebody playing the Jaws theme song. And so she's like, I've watched Jaws. Like, no, you have not. You have not. And don't tell people that. 
because this all points out that there are some things that should not happen at such a young age. There, there are things that just should not happen at a young age. Um, today we're going to explore one such story. A tragedy that occurred at a young age that made it all the more awful. And so if you have your copy of scripture, and I hope you do, will you turn with me to the book of Ruth? Last week we were in Judges. The book of Ruth is just following the book of Judges. So we're in the Old Testament, a small four-chapter book called Ruth. So the book of Ruth begins in chapter one where we will start. Um, And this is a narrative, so we we need to enter into this story and see what is happening here. So kids, I want you to track with me, like in your mind, start making the story pages, like come to life, like visualize what's happening as we go through this story. Ruth chapter one, verse one, says, during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. So, so important to understanding a story and understanding any of scripture and not taking it the wrong way is to understand it in its context. And so we need to establish some context here um, so we can ask the questions of who, what, when, where, why kind of thing. And so if we start with just timing, it starts and tells us in the time of judges. And so we talked about judges a lot last week that this is the cycle that they're in. This is the time before kings were established in Israel. So this is before Saul, the first king, or David, the kind of the apex of the kingdom, the Davidic kingdom established. Before we had kings who were governing in Israel, you had this time of judges where God would bring someone in because they were stuck in this repeating cycle. Remember, sin. They would miss the mark of God. They would walk away. They would live in rebellion. And then because of that, we know, just like us, our sin has consequences, There's a consequence, there's oppression that follows sin. And so they go from sin to oppression and then they would cry out, there would be this repentance as they'd realize we've messed up and they would cry out to God and then he would come in grace and bring a deliverer, raise someone up and they were called judges. These were leaders who would come about and they would help lead the people out of oppression because of the repentance and into peace. There would be a time of peace and then they would keep repeating that cycle because you remember the statement that we, that we saw reoccurring throughout the book of Judges that kind of captures the heart of that time period is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so now this book, Ruth, is taking place in that time. So during those cycles of sin and oppression and then this repentance and then the deliverance and then a time of peace and then go back to sin and just kind of going through that over and over. So this is where we find ourselves in this time and now in this place. They're in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is their home. Bethlehem ironically means house of bread, and yet no food is to be found. There's a famine. They're starving in their home, Bethlehem, and so they move, and they move to Moab. And this is significant for us because if you go into the book of Judges, and even prior to that, Moab is an enemy territory. When the people of God are going through the wilderness and coming to the promised land, as they try to go through Moab, Moab harasses them. They're an enemy. And then you fast forward, and just before the story we talked about last week with Deborah, um, there's a time when the, the Moabite king is oppressing the people of God, of, is oppressing Israel, and Ehud, the left-handed man, stabs a dagger. Kids, you're gonna love that story. Go ask your parents to read it with you. Um, and this, this, this guy dies and everything, and they're delivered. But again, it points us to the fact that at this time, this is an enemy. 
of Israel. And yet, because of the famine, they have left their home in the house of bread, Bethlehem, and they've gone to enemy territory looking for a place to settle where they will not starve to death. And then the people. You have characters. You have Elimelech, who is the leader of his family, the husband, and his wife, Naomi. And then they have two sons, Mahlon and Chilion. That's great. So we know kind of where we're at, what's happening, who the people are. And now look at verse three. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. And she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Mahlon and Chilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. So we have introduced the introduction of additional characters. The two sons marry Moabites, people who lived in Moab. These are not ethnic Jews. This is Orpah and Ruth who are Moabites. And so you have the introduction of these characters, but then you have tragedy strike. As tragedy strikes, as one of the characters is eliminated, Elimelech, the dad, he dies. And so Naomi is now a widow. And it's like, oh, that's really sad. But then it gets even worse. As tragedy strikes again, and both of the sons have died. And now you have three widows together, two different generations, with no father figure with no husband. And this is in a time of a patriarchal society, meaning they, widows, were incredibly vulnerable. They could not own land. They could not hold power and position. And so now these widows are left here in Moab. So for Naomi, this is enemy territory. She has nothing. She's lost everything because she's lost her husband and her sons who would retain the wealth of the family, hold any kind of power for protection, things like that. They're vulnerable. And they're left here. So look at what happens in verse six. She and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. So word reaches them that the house of bread has apparently been restocked. And so it makes sense. They're vulnerable. They need to get out of here. Let's go back. It sounds like things are better in Bethlehem. So let's go back to Bethlehem. And verse eight, Naomi said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. This is a sad goodbye she's trying for. They said to her, we insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters. My life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, they wept loudly and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. 
And so you have, in the face of tragedy, this, this exchange that's going back and forth as Naomi, as this elderly woman, has lost her husband, has lost her two sons, and now her daughters-in-law are there with her, and she's saying, I'm going home. There's nothing for you where I'm going. Just stay here. Go back to your people. Find another husband. Find some way to prosper in this life. And they're weeping and saying, no, we're with you. And she's like, look, here's this, like, let's face reality here. I'm too old to have children. I'm not going to get married again. And even if that were possible, if I could have a child tonight, would you really wait until that child is old enough to be your husband? Do you want to give up that much of your life? That much of your dreams, your aspirations for what you want to do in this life? So go. And Orpah is convinced. She cries, hugs her, and says her goodbyes. And she's walking away. But Ruth is still holding on to Naomi. And Naomi's like, look at your sister. Go with her. Go. You know what's best. But Ruth says, absolutely not. I'm committed to you. I'm staying with you. I'm insisting on staying with you. And then verse 19. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival and the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. They're back in the house of bread. Back in Bethlehem. And Naomi shows up and it's like these old friends remember her. Hey, is it really? It's Naomi. And she's like, no, 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 no. I'm no longer Naomi. Call me Mara. Naomi in Hebrew means kindness. It means pleasant, to be lovely, to be delightful, to be friendly. She says, the Lord, the Almighty, has been against me. I'm no longer these things. I am Mara. I am bitter. I am just bitter. She attributes all of the tragedy that they have experienced to God's sovereign hand. And so we must ask the question, why would Naomi be convinced that the Lord opposed her and afflicted her? Could it be for the guilt she feels for fleeing Israel under Elimelech's leadership rather than trusting the Lord to provide? Well, we don't know. But it seems like a very logical thing. That the Lord had told them in the law, there are blessings and curse involved in this covenant. If you are faithful, I will bless you. If you are not faithful, there will be curses. And the curses include things like famine and drought. That you will start to starve. Things will go poorly. But if you will return to me, then I will pour out showers of blessing on you. And so in their time, in the cycle of judges, when they have sinned, they've walked away from God and his covenant, his commands, and now they're facing the oppression, the consequence, the curse of that. Instead of turning back to God and seeing God provide for them, they instead say, let's get out of here. And so they go to enemy territory. So could it be that she now thinks, this is God's sovereign hand of judgment on my life, afflicting me. He opposes me because of my sin. I'm paying for this. And so... No, I'm not delightful. I am bitter. She has become bitter. 
And so I have to ask you, and I have to ask myself, are we living in shame and guilt in all of our hurt, believing that our circumstances are God's judgment on us because of sin? The story does not end there, but this chapter does, and so will we today. Can we sit in that? An unfinished story where we don't know the answers and it hurts. But can we sit there and truly be in it? As we look at just what has led up to this, I want you to see a contrast that has been drawn here beautifully and yet devastatingly. That Elimelech, as the leader of his family, he left Israel not trusting God. But here's this young girl, this Moabitess, who's not even ethnically part of the people of God, who's been married in. Some would say, should not have even married into it. And yet this character, Ruth, enters Israel trusting God with mom saying, there's nothing for you here. There's nothing for you here. And yet she goes into this land trusting. Elimelech led his family to flee from the trial. Naomi grows bitter in the trial. And yet Ruth holds steadfast in the trial and commits herself even deeper. We are so desperate to get out of anything painful. But what if God actually wants something more for us in seasons of pain? What if God loves us so much that he doesn't want us to just get out of pain, but he wants to do something redemptive and beautiful in the pain? But we are so obsessed with just getting out of it as fast as possible. Could it be that we're missing something in that? I mean, story after story and scripture after story throughout the scriptures, it's just, it's replete with this idea that God is actually active in our suffering and it's in our suffering that he is doing something redemptive and beautiful. Something that is actually for our good. And that doesn't mean that we attribute God's sovereign hand to making all these bad things happen. But he is sovereign over all these bad things. And he loves to work in all things for our good and his glory. He has promised us such. And so as we obsess over just getting out of pain, what if God is inviting us to actually just be in that with him? What if the invitation of God is in your pain, in your despair? I will show up and I'll be there with you. So don't run from me in that because that's actually where I'm coming to meet you. Could we sit in that? Bottom line, trust in God even when you don't know what's happening. Can we do that? Can we be a people who will trust God even when it doesn't make sense? Even when we don't know? This is a pet peeve of mine because I am so arrogant that I have been the, the bad guy in this scenario. But we should not, in this side of redemption, this side of eternity, we should not pretend like we have all the answers to questions we don't have answers for. We don't know why so many bad things happen. We have beautiful promises to hold on to in that, but we cannot explain away these things. And so often what God wants, what God wants for us as the family of beloved with the Denon family as part of that is not for us to come in and explain everything because we don't actually know. But instead to remind them, this is what we do know. These promises God has clearly given us and we're here. We're in this together. And he is here. 
He meets us in this in a very special way. Trust in God even when we don't know what's happening. And it's amazing to me to think that Ruth would express allegiance to and identification with God not even knowing the outcome. She did not grow up memorizing the Pentateuch. She was not there to watch God miraculously part the Red Sea or any of these things, and not that their generation was either, but they've heard the stories firsthand from their parents and their parents and their parents, and yet this is a girl who would have grown up hearing about other gods, and yet she's saying, I will trust and follow your God. I will go back there even though you're telling me there's nothing for me there. That is quite profound. Can we live with such a devotion without fully knowing how the story is going to pan out? And yet we do know our ultimate end. This is our hope. This is why Paul says that that we do not grieve as those who have no hope, that we grieve, but we grieve with hope because we do know the end. The gospel, the good news is that, yes, there is brokenness, there is pain, there are babies who die even. Do you know what it is like to hold a child in those days? Could you imagine And every one of you, if you were to share your story, could share about just immense heartache, the things that you have encountered in your own life and the lives of those around you. We live in a world full of pain and suffering. And we know that that is ultimately because of our sin. That the the brokenness is in response to our sin, our rebellion against God. And so the creator created us to be in communion with him and that has been fractured because of our sin. And there's all of this brokenness And yet that creator is so loving and so gracious that he says, I'm coming into the mess. I'm coming after you. I'm stepping right into it. And he comes here and he lives a sinless life and he dies the death that you and I deserve saying, this is how much I love you, that I would literally love you to death. I love you. Will you believe that I am your salvation, that he is the sacrifice to atone for all of our sin? Will you put your trust in a savior who died, but then he rose again victorious, saying, now we get to live forever together. And I love you, and I delight in you, even though you've messed up so much, I'm not holding it against you. In fact, I love you so much, I came after you when you were my enemy. When you hated me, I ran after you in love. This is the good news of the gospel, that it does not end today. Thursday, Friday was not the end of Ellie's life. We'll get to dance together in heaven. We'll get to sing. We'll get to go on adventures as God recreates this earth without the potential of sin. And so we look to the promise of what the gospel is, is that this is not the end. God is coming back. And he says, I'm making everything new. There will be no more pain, no more sin. The former things, they fast away. Like God himself reaching out with nail-scarred hands to wipe tears from our cheeks. That is the day that we look forward to. So can we live in the tension of not knowing the answers to today, but knowing the end? As I've heard it said repeatedly, if it's not okay, it's not the end. Because we know it's going to be okay in the end. But can we live in the tension of that? And so I want to conclude with just some practical ideas that, that God shared with me through this passage this week and wrestling through this. as like Chris actually arranged the sermon series over a month ago for the summer series. This has been on our teaching calendar for over a month, that today we would be in Ruth 1. And as I'm sitting Thursday afternoon with Jesse, 
in a waiting room and I'm putting together all of my thoughts and notes for this sermon. I'm watching families come in with smiles and leave with smiles. This is celebration. Life. Life flourishing in this place. And yet we're here lamenting, grieving. It's just that crazy juxtaposition. And you have to ask why. What do we do in this moment? And so as we look at this, think practically, what do I do in the waiting and the seeming absence of God? I think there are just three things, and this is not exhaustive, but three things that I would hold out to you that I found in this text. Community, communion, and confession. We'll even make it sound like a Baptist church with the alliteration. Community. Do you see how Naomi, in her bitterness, in her hurt and her pain, attempted to cut off community? No, go, go, daughters. Let me be alone. And yet Ruth says, no, 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 no. I'm gonna press in and commit myself to this community. She says, wherever you live, I will live. Do not separate from me. And if I should separate from you, so help me, God. Hold me to it. Will you commit to community? In your pain, in your sorrow, will you commit, will you press into community, allowing others to walk alongside, to sit in that with you? This is the beauty of church membership that we call our membership class gospel partnership. We're gonna to partner together in the gospel and we actually sign a covenant. If you are a member of this church, you know. We actually promise to be together. That we don't take this lightly. That we culturally hate to sign our name on things because that usually means I'm going into more debt. <laughs> That's usually when we're giving an autograph. It's some kind of payment. And yet we gladly, we joyfully sign our name on a line saying, amen. I am with you we will push each other through the hard and good times and we'll hold to Jesus together. And so we have gospel partnership coming up in two weeks. Today is newcomer's lunch. You can still join us. Come to the office at 12 o'clock. Learn more about who we are. And then in two weeks, if you want to step into that kind of partnership, to be like Ruth and say, even though it's hard, I'm with you. Where you live, I will live. For the glory of God, we'll partner together. And no, these are people who have covenanted together to say, I'm in. I love you and you were loved. And I'll constantly call you beloved because you are loved. Will you remember that? Uh, in the words of Matt Chandler, <laughs> he says, God's, God's desire is never for you to attend a church, but to belong to a church. So will you belong? And know that you belong. And will you actively step into that? We come together weekly with the command in scripture to not forsake the gathering. And that shouldn't become a legalistic thing like, oh, should I feel bad if I'm not feeling well or I'm a little overwhelmed with this project or like, I'm going on vacation, is that bad? Like, scripture says I've gotta be there. Like, no, you don't take that to a legalistic level, but you should absolutely obey it and see the beauty of coming together as the saints. And so if you're in a habit of not coming together with the people of God, you should feel conviction by the spirit. Say, it is important for me to come together with people that I covenant together with and say, where you live, I will live. And communion. We have the actual sacrament of communion, the Lord's Supper. But behind that is the reality of our union and fellowship with God himself and his people. That's why it's called communion. It's to be a reminding, a reminder for us 
that he is with us in a special way to not just remember, but the point of remembering is to know he is actually with us. And so like we put the elements inside of us to know Christ is in me. Not that we're changing the actual substance of these things, but to be a reminder, this picture of the gospel, that Christ is in me. The spirit of God dwelling in the temple of God and we, church, are the temple of God. God's presence with us to be in communion, to say like Ruth, your God will be my God. My God. To know he is with us. As Romans 8, 38 to 39, I love this passage as you get through the book of Romans and it kind of comes to this climactic point in chapter 8. It's like the, the, the pinnacle of the promises of God in this. Romans 8, 38 to 39 says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And do you hear that promise? Do you hear the promise of communion that God is with us when he says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. He is with us. He loves us. Nothing will take that away. Nothing. And so you have to ask, are you persuaded? Paul said he's persuaded. How can you look at a savior dying on a cross? There in the foreground and in the background, babies dying. And every other calamity that you face in life and know he's for me, he loves me and nothing is ever going to take him away from me because he loves me. So I'm persuaded. Are you persuaded? Do you know that he loves you? You're skeptic? I don't know if you believe this. Are you persuaded that he loves you? A seeker, you want to know truth so desperately. You want to know what is true. Are you persuaded that he loves you when you see him die for you? Doubting Christian who can't understand what's going on, asking so many questions, can you be persuaded that he loves you? A stumbling saint I just can't get out of this sin. And you wonder over and over, every time you fall, can he still love me? Can you be persuaded that he's died saying it's finished? Every bit of it. He loves you. And Christian, follower of Jesus, are you persuaded? Are you persuaded enough to know the love of God that you would love him so much that now you say, who can I tell? Who can I tell this good news? Will you believe this good news? Will you share this good news? And how will you do that? Our third C is confession. Will you confess this? Will you say it? Will you recall the promises of God and voice your faith? Catch this. Ruth has been using the word God, Elohim in Hebrew, which is a generic reference to any divine or supernatural thing. And yet, as she concludes, and she invites a curse from God on her, if she were to break her word, she changes. And she says, may the Lord, the divine name of God, Yahweh, may the Lord do so severely. 
that this is her confession. Everything tied up in the covenantal name of God who confessed, you will be mine. I am a God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, full of forgiveness and compassion, all of who I am. I'm tying myself to you. And she says, I'm part of that. So will you confess that? Will you make it your confession? Like those catchy songs that my kids catch on to way more easily than I want them to. The gift of music and singing is that it's catchy and it actually moves us physiologically and that's not something to be scared of. Is it manipulation? It can be, but don't let it be. Embrace the fact that you were embodied. You are a human and God created you this way. So rejoice in singing. Make it your confession. Be moved by it and lift your voice to say, nothing is gonna separate me from the love of my God. And sometimes all I can do is just say, oh God, oh God. So we're gonna sing a song that is all about the nearness of God, the love of God for us, and how sometimes all we can do is say, oh God. But then we can recall his promise. Nothing is gonna separate us from him. So will you stand and sing? Let's make this our confession.